Will you just take a deep breath with me? Let's breathe in the word together. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The word of the Lord. You know, uh, to be honest, in this moment, I can't get the music stand to move. No, in this moment, I, I, uh, I have mixed emotions. And it's, it's not so much because of, um, because of this, or because of this, because frankly, after a couple of years, I've gotten kind of used to this and this. But I get mixed emotions whenever I come to preach because I don't know that I always know what I feel or think about preaching. I, I, I just don't know if I know what I think about this moment. All the time. Now, K. Russo, relax. Don't incite a riot. Just give me a second. I, I believe in preaching. Okay, Mark Scott, don't have a heart attack. Like I, I support preaching. I'm all for preaching. I encourage preaching. I, I preach. <laughs> okay. But there's something about this moment that gives me mixed emotions. It's the it's the performative element of preaching that at times bothers me because I know, I know that, you know, in the lobby or in the dorms or maybe even on Twitter right now, my hand gestures will be critiqued. My dominant thought will be critiqued. The pacing of my words will be critiqued. The opening line, the ending line. And the whole part of it that frustrates me is I'm going, I just want to see you. That's why I love teaching. Because in teaching, we get, to, we get to lock eyes. It's why I love taking someone out and going and just sitting at coffee. It's because we get to share our hearts. I get to hear your questions and your wounds and your Enneagram number. And, I, and we get to talk about it. We get to connect. And it's not that I'm against preaching. Please don't hear me say that. I'm just saying there's an element of this that just gives me mixed emotions. Where we have this so crafted at times, again, I'm not saying let's not, but where someone that is mentally challenged, if they're being too loud, we have to take them out of the auditorium. Which feels weird to me. And so I I, I come into this moment and I just need to confess right at the very beginning of the sermon, I have mixed emotions. It's something that's been pretty familiar to me over the last seven weeks. Because over the last several weeks where I, I finally started to realize I'm not so sure I've ever learned to see. Now, I, I mean, 
we, we all don't really think about that much. And some of you are like, yeah, you can see. I mean, yeah, you may have glasses, but you can see. No, no, no. Like, I'm not so sure I've ever learned to see. Which we don't really think about that. I mean, there's not a, one of us in here that'd be like, I remember the moment as a child where I willed my eyes to start to behold. Like, we don't. <laughs> we take it for granted, most of us, that we can see. But, but I started to have this conviction in my heart that I'm not so sure that I've ever really learned to see. And, and it started several weeks ago. I, I was up in Providence, Rhode Island, and I was taken 10 days to literally just walk the streets, find a coffee shop, sit down, write, get up, walk the streets, find another coffee shop, write, wrestling with the Lord, wrestling with Scripture, just trying to create space to figure out how to see. And it was about day five or six that this passage popped into my mind as I was going across the the Capitol lawn. And as I was walking, all of a sudden, I became very bothered. Deep, mixed emotions. Because of the birth narrative. Now, what gave me the the mixed emotions, what bothered me was, was not the fact that Joseph, who's my middle name, Joseph... He tried to, or he thought about, or he wanted to divorce Mary. That's not what bothered me, although it does bother me a little. And it wasn't that Zachariah doubted. And it wasn't even the concept of the virgin birth. I'm like, listen, if our God can create everything out of nothing, this is not that big of a deal. He can do this. No, what bothered me was Matthew chapter 2 and the Magi. The Magi really messed with my head. And it's not because, you know, it's we three kings of Orion. Or like, there wasn't probably three kings because it never says that in the text. And even though we put them at the birth narrative, it's not even, we're not even for sure they were even there at the birth. That's not what was bothering me. What's bothering me was this. The Magi didn't have the Old Testament. But they saw Jesus clearly. I mean, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. They come to Herod and they say, where is the one born king of the Jews? We're here to worship him. But where did they get this idea? They didn't have Moses or Abraham or Ezekiel or Daniel or Isaiah. or They just looked at creation and saw that creation was singing a song that I very rarely hear or see. And as a Bible college professor, I'm being honest, it gave me mixed emotions. I'm like, no! The special revelation leads to clear worship. And the Magi go, okay, well, what were all you all doing then? Matthew's gospel just makes the end of the gospel just makes it worse. You're at the foot of the cross. You have people at the foot of the cross. The disciples aren't there though, except for John. That's my man. John. The passers-by though, they just mock Jesus. I mean, he's right in front of them. The Jewish elite, what do they do? They throw insults. They mock him. He's right in front of them. When suddenly... The sun darkens, the veil tears, the ground begins to quake. And in Matthew 27, verse 54, it says this. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, when they saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. The only ones that get it right at the cross... They weren't the disciples. 
They weren't the Jewish elite. It was the pagan centurions who saw something that they didn't see. And here's the thing that really starts to bother me. Is that if I was anywhere in that story, it wouldn't be here. It would be here. (laughs) So I started having mixed emotions and asking myself this question. What am I missing? What, What is it that I'm missing? Do I really know how to see? Have I ever learned how to see? I thought I knew. But now I'm really not so sure. And and, and I have mixed feelings about it. But the Magi and the Centurion haunt me as they bookend Matthew's Gospel, saying, Shane, do you really have the ability to look around and see God speaking in all things. John chapter 13 is our text. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It is the moment where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Where he takes water and he, he pours it into a basin. And then he takes a towel and he goes up to the first disciple. And he puts himself in the posture of a servant, of a slave. And one by one, he begins to wash their feet. But something struck me as I was studying this text. This text is not so much about serving as it is about seeing. I mean, it does have an element of service in it. That is one of the central components. But it's not so much about serving as it is about learning how to see. Verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, uh, he loved them to the end. Oh, I have mixed feelings about NIV 2011. I mean, you know, it's good. I'm glad they updated it. They got nice new covers and it's delightful, but... On occasion, I just come across a verse and I'm like, why did you translate it like that? Like Revelation 1.1. The revelation from Jesus Christ. I'm like, well, it is from him, but it's also about him. You could have said of, but no, you changed the preposition. For what? For fanciness? Now, it's not that this translation is wrong. Like when you look at the Greek, that is a legitimate, accurate translation. Matter of fact... Most of the majority of the the mainline translations, that's what they have. It ends with, he loved them to the end. But they had it right back in 1984. NIV never should have changed this verse. NIV 1984, it's my favorite rendition of the Greek. It says, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. Catch this. He now showed them the full extent of his love. Now that's high praise. The full extent of God's love, which, to be honest, gives me a little bit of mixed emotions that it occurs here in John 13. Because, I mean, that's a pretty important title. What is the fullest extent of God's love? And there's quite a few candidates throughout Scripture... I mean, Genesis 1, that would be one of the ones I'd vote for, where God shows his love by wooing 
everything into existence. Or even Exodus chapter 20, the law, the gracious ability for us to see ourselves clearly. Or, I mean, my goodness, John chapter 1, where the word becomes flesh. Or John 19, where Jesus hangs on the cross, where he dies in our place, takes our sin onto himself, and even has the audacity to cry out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And yet in John's gospel, the fullest extent of God's love is reserved for a towel and a basin. For this moment with Jesus and his disciples, where he begins by pouring water and gets down at his knees in the form of a servant. Why? Why does John call this the fullest extent of God's love? I think verse 2 gives us a clue and a theme. Verse 2 says this, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. Did you catch that at the very beginning? John's like, hey, about ready to show you the fullest extent to God's love. By the way, Judas has already been hanging out with Satan. And then that theme comes back up in verse 10. Verse 10, this is after, you know, Peter, God love him. He's just like, hey, Jesus, wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, relax. (laughs) Come on, Peter. Jesus says, okay, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet, Peter. Because their whole body's clean, Peter. And you are clean, Peter. Didn't catch this? Though not every one of you are. Not every one of you is clean. And in case we miss it by that passing comment, verse 11, bam, hits it right in front of us, hits us in the head with it. For Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said, not every one of you was clean. The fullest extent of God's love begins with the proclamation that Judas had already given himself over to Satan's mission. And Jesus knew it. And he still grabbed a towel and basin and didn't leave Judas out. What's interesting to me is the only other disciple mentioned in these 17 verses, they're all there. The only other disciple mentioned, Peter, and he's not much better. I mean, in a dozen or so verses, chapter 13, verse 37, Peter will say, Lord, I will die with you. And then in chapter 18, verse 10, he thinks his moment has come and he pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus. But then five verses later, a slave girl comes. He's like, I never knew him. Two people are mentioned in this text. Judas, Satan's minion, and Peter, the denier. And yet, what does Jesus do? What is his response? Knowing the heart of Judas, knowing Peter's movements. He gets on his knees and he begins to wash their feet. Man, I read this text and and I have mixed emotions. 
It's probably the same emotions that, that matched the disciples in the room. I mean, this was the king of kings who is now taking the form of a slave. This was the Messiah. This was the one they were following, but he's putting himself in the position of the one that is the lowest. And then whenever you add in the fact that Jesus knew about Judas and, and Peter, my emotions start to overwhelm me. They get all mixed up. And when you have mixed emotions, it, it's not just frustrating or confusing. You almost don't know where to walk. You don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. And I get in mixed emotions whenever I think about the disciples and I say, how could you have not seen him? In this moment, how did you not see him? Which then immediately comes back to me and says, Shane... Are you sure you ever really learned how to see? I mean, you act like you do. You assume you do. But I'm not so sure that I've ever learned how to see. And John 13 has challenged me with this. Yes, this text is about serving, but even more than that, it's about learning how to see. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in an office uh, similar to this. Um, this. This group of ladies, three ladies, they asked me if I would come early one Sunday morning and just, just talk with them about the Bible. They're like, man, we got questions. They're like, get ready, because they're weird. I was like, okay. They're like, but we just want to sit down and talk with you. And I was like, that's great. I, I prefer that anyway. I love sitting across and just wrestling with the word. And so, so we sat down. I'm not kidding. The first, I sit down. First question. So what's up with circumcision? I was like, what? I'm not even kidding. They're like, yeah, I'm just kind of curious about that. I mean, God says it's forever. And then Acts 15, he's like, man, maybe not. What, what's the deal with that? And how come it was circumcision? Women can't be circumcised. Is God a problem with women? I'm like, whoa. It's like, um... <laughs> I didn't know I was walking into this. And one of them was just like, oh yeah, by the way, Exodus 4.24, what's that about? And I was like, okay, whoa. So we're right in the middle of this. And we're just answering question after question and wrestling with the text and, and digging in deep when all of a sudden we hear this little on the door. And, and all the, the ladies kind of look at each other. They looked at me and I was like, I don't know what's going on. It's your office. Like, I'm not expecting anyone. And so Miss Mary, it was her office, Miss Mary goes over to the door and she leans over and she undoes the, and as soon as she turns the knob, this little four-year-old boy comes bursting in and just wraps his arms around her neck. Now, I, for, I forgot to tell you, Miss Mary, she's the principal of the school and the office we were at. And this was one of the boys that, that was in her school. And she had also had the boy's siblings and he is just clinging to her neck. Now, initially, Miss Mary didn't even know who it was, because I also forgot to tell you, Miss Mary suffers from a retinal degeneration, a, a disorder. She's, she's legally blind. I mean, everything is blurry. And he is just clinging to her neck. And she finally pulls back and sees his face and then pulls him close starts whispering his name and saying, I am so proud of you. You have been doing so good this year. And she starts to cry a little, but then she prays a, prays a prayer over him. 
And she, multiple times she thought the hug was over, but he wasn't done. And I'll, I'll confess to you, I'll be honest with you. I was a little annoyed. I was a little annoyed. We're right in the middle of this discussion. We're right in the middle of digging into God's word. I'm trying to remember my train of thought. The parents are just standing at the door as if nothing's happening. And as the moment came to a close, Miss Mary looked at him in the face, said, I love you. And he walked out and closed the door. And as she was trying to hide the tears that were in her eyes, all of a sudden it hit me and I immediately repented. It hit me, oh my goodness. The one in the room with the retinal disorder is truly the only one in the room that's able to see. Because seeing has very little to do with the eyes in your head. Seeing has very little to do with 2020 vision. Because many of us walk across the campus, we lay down in our dorm rooms, and we just don't take the time to learn how to see. To see God in the ordinary moments. To see God in the mundane things of life. Listen, I hope you go back to your dorm rooms and you dream about the epic that God is carrying you on. But don't get so focused on the epic that you forget how to actually fall in love with the God that grabs a talon basin. Don't be blinded by your epic. Instead, train yourself by learning how to see so that when the epic comes, you have the eyes of a magi the eyes of a centurion, the, the eyes of Miss Mary. So I was wrestling with how do you end a sermon like this? You know, I took Mark Scott's class. I know I'm supposed to preach in the form of the text. I get it. Let the text win, right, Mark? And I actually thought about, what, what if I just washed everyone's feet in the auditorium? I was like, I th- think that would take a while. And I'm not sure by the end everybody would get the point. Because while that was mundane in the time of Jesus, that's not really an ordinary thing for us to do today. And then it hit me. Just just last week it hit me. My my youngest son, Robert, man, love that kid. (laughs) Whoa. He's a wild one. And about ten times a day we have to do this routine... Robert, did you hit your sister? You know? It's like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. I just swung my fist. I was like, okay. Okay. So the other day we're having one of these moments, except for it's with the neighbor girl. And I said, I said, hey, Robert, you need to go apologize and make things right, buddy. So, you know, an ordinary thing for, you know, a five-year-old walks over. He's like, Eden, I'm sorry. She's like, I forgive you. You know. (laughs) And then what's crazy is they both just run away like light and pure and clean and free. And then I sat there and thought, well, that's such an ordinary thing that brings a lot of us mixed emotions. 
having the audacity to just simply look at the people around you and say, man, I, I messed up and I'm sorry. So here's how I want to close. I want to close by begging for your forgiveness. Students, please forgive me. I don't always take my sacred position as your guide to God's word with enough gravity, with enough solemnity. Forgive me for not having a heart that is, that is always pure. That at times I, I love your compliments too much and I too easily dismiss your complaints. Forgive me for keeping you two to three minutes over every class as if my time's more valuable than yours. I genuinely believe that, that you deserve the best. And, I, and I'm just afraid that I'm not. So I, I want to ask you students to please forgive me. Fellow faculty, I, I want to ask for you to forgive me. Forgive me for not stopping by your office to ask about the health and the vitality of your soul. For hiding behind my introversion and not pouring myself completely into faculty functions. Forgive me for not lifting you up in prayer as much as you do me. I mean, I I know how hard you work. And I know how much you love the church. And I am humbled to stand alongside of you in this calling. Teresa Welch, please forgive me. Um, Forgive me for playing my music too loud at times. For not being sensitive enough to the burdens that you carry for our institution. Um, You are powerful. And I want you to know that I see you. John Kerr, please forgive me for not loving you and your family well when you first came here. Um, I know coming to new places is a very lonely thing, and I did not reach out to you like a colleague and a friend and a brother in Christ like I should have. And I'm sorry for that. Terry Boland, forgive me for not publicly declaring how much respect I have for you in your heart. You are a better man than me in more ways than I can count, and I don't say that out loud enough. Kevin Greer, forgive me that I haven't been back to Como in three years. Man, you've always been a better friend to me than I've been to you. So please forgive me. Krista Welt. Forgive me for not treasuring our friendship with the dignity it deserves. You are my conscience. You are my sage. And I don't always handle it with the treasure that it is. Doug Welch, 
forgive me for not reciprocating the listening tender heart that you always offer to me. Yeah, I say five minutes, but it's an hour and a half later and you're still there, man. And what, 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 you never ask for anything in return. And I don't even know if I've ever said thank you for that. So, so please forgive me. Michael DeFazio, please forgive me. Forgive me for failing to love you as a friend should, as a neighbor should. Man, I'm so thankful for your presence on our campus. And and I've told you this privately, but I've never said it publicly or at least enough. That I genuinely believe that when students take your classes and when they come in contact with you, they are inevitably going to be more like Jesus. And I don't say that often enough or public enough. So please forgive me. President Proctor, forgive me for being that guy, you know. (laughs) For the the countless meetings that I've come and and typically I'm on the brink, you know, only to to ask for your graciousness that, that I've never even earned. And you always thank me in response. Please forgive me for handling that gift carelessly. Damien, forgive me for handling the stress of budgets not very well. Man, I don't want to be a thorn in your side. Especially when you have so many arrows flying at you anyway. I Forgive me for adding to your burden. Doug Aldridge, please forgive me for all the times I've lacked patience. I mean, as we always say, you know, I'd take a bullet for you and you'd shoot someone for me. I do. I mean, seriously though, man, you're a shield for me that I don't deserve. Um, You're a stream of living water that I always don't know how to draw from. To my kids, please forgive me. Man, I I don't always smile when you expect, and I don't always cry when I should, and I don't always play instead of rest. Forgive me for being such a constant strain on your grace. To my wife, please forgive me for not always loving you the way that Christ loved the church. for not remembering the gift you are to me each moment that our eyes meet or every time I think of you when I'm away. Forgive me for not being a knight in shining armor, but more like a buffoon in tinfoil, you know? (laughs) Forgive me for wounds unintended or undeserved. I'm incomplete without you. To the bride of Christ, to the church of Jesus Christ, please forgive me. Please forgive me for pushing too hard when you simply wanted me to sit and listen. Forgive me for ignoring your needs when I seek my own, for forgetting to wash your feet, for forgetting to tell you I love you, for forgetting to offer you words of life instead of words of challenge or rebuke. 
Forgive me for neglecting to say to you, church, that I'm proud of you. I'm humbled to serve you. And for not always demonstrating my willingness to die for you as Christ died for all of us. I'm not worthy to be your servant or to wash your feet. But I do long to see. To see clearly. To see you for the beauty that you are. So please forgive me for not knowing how to see. I'm not worthy to sit with you, more or less stand before you. And listen, I, I know grace will come. And in that moment, I long to embrace the warmth of grace as it washes away my sins. But on this day, I, I choose to sit in the sorrow of repentance. The loneliness of indiscretion, the sorrow of I'm sorry the middle space filled with mixed emotions where sorrow threatens to bloom into repentance and a new day dawns when tombs are memories and forgiveness are given and the full extent of God's love is on display. For today though, I'm simply sorry. Sorry.